Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Catherine Dean Mazarov, author of the debut novel, Summer Club. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here with you. Great. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, Summer Club, how would you describe the novel? It's, it's kind of two stories in one. Um, it's based on my experience as president of my swim club and all the crazy things that went on. And then it's got a dark element to it. So it's a combination, sort of like murder meets the absurd is how I generally describe it in, in a, a sentence. It's, and, um, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. It's the story of Lydia Phillips, who's a very strong theme uh, protagonist. Uh, she's a journalist turned stay-at-home mom who is still trying to fill a void from her high-energy job as an editor at the local newspaper. But she's pushed to the max as president of a rundown, a rundown Meadow Glen Swim and Tennis Club, which has a leaky pool, crack cords, and a junk food emporium run by a stoned, aging hippie who may have more than candy and corn dogs in mind. Um, the petty complaining, mishaps and messes, messes, power plays, parent drama, and a lawsuit that could shutter the club for good keep Lydia awake at night, distracting her from her husband and twin teenage boys. Um, yeah, this is a series of suspicious and increasingly troubling incidents that push Lydia toward the edge, making this a summer unlike any other. Late night intruders at the club, a break-in at her home, a mysterious blue sedan following the club manager, and then a startling discovery on the club grounds. And when a body surfaces in the river, the newspaper reporter and Lydia begins to suspect these events are somehow connected. So as daily chaos rages on at Meadow Glen, Lydia is unable to resist the urge to follow her instincts that something dark and insidious is indeed afoot, and she becomes consumed by the trail of clues that lead her down this trail of baffling twists and turns, ultimately ending up at the wrong place at the wrong time and fighting for her life. That sounds great. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Summer Club? Well, I'm a, I'm a, a career journalist, so I've written worked several years at the Denver Post, written all my life uh, in various you know, formats. And over the years, I've often been asked, would I ever consider writing a book? And my answer was always the same. No, I, I have no interest in writing a book, especially fiction, because I come from a nonfiction world. But then I took this after I quit my job at the Post um, to, to get on the mommy track. I, took, I, became, I started doing all this volunteering, just like Lydia, the protagonist in the book, and ended up as president of my swim and tennis club and thinking, this should be a piece of cake after all my time in the newsroom with deadlines and clashing egos and reporters having temper tantrums and all kinds of stuff. This should be fine. Um, I can hang out. It'll be easy. And I was, I was willing. This is the, one of the worst, most stressful, quote, jobs I've ever had. But I just kept saying it to myself, you know, you can't make this stuff up. I've got to write a book. I mean, this stuff. That was going on. It was it was just crazy. I, my phone rang off the hook. People complaining and whining <laughs> and cheating and parent drama and all this stuff going on. And so I wrote, started writing the book. And so that was my impetus. Um, <clears throat> after I sort of got into sort of recounting all these crazy tales, I realized I needed to add some tension 
to the plot. So that's when I came up with this dark fraud scheme that um, sort of interplays, weaves into the story. <clears throat> and so how different was it for you to write fiction and to write a novel, given your, as you mentioned, your years of writing nonfiction and journalism? In some ways, it was not difficult because I'm used to sitting down at in front of a computer or early in my days as in, at a typewriter and just writing. And you learn to do that when you work at a newspaper. However, working for the newspaper and also magazines and other you know, corporate communications and those kinds of things, which I've done. It is very different than it's different writing fiction and it's it. it it's different because in those other situations, you're dealing with a space and time constriction. You don't have a lot of time and space to just to wax on and really flesh out scenes. So I found myself rushing through chapters, wanting to get to the next chapter or to the end of the book, thinking I needed to finish, I need to finish. And after I wrote my first draft, I Send it out. I had some beta readers look at it and they all said, slow down. You've got to <laughs> develop this scene, develop this character. You're just rushing through this. So I had to consciously learn to do that and, and make a point of doing that and train myself to just, I'm not on deadline here. I'm just going to flesh this out and really develop this, this scene and make it more vivid and compelling. At least that was my my intention. Right. Well, I know that you worked at uh, the Denver Post with a team of reporters that won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news reporting in 2000. What breaking news event did you write about that won the Pulitzer? It was the Columbine shooting in 1999, which was mm. really the first. It was a mass shooting. And it's. 11 people were killed and it was uh one of the it was probably the first of these sort of spate of mass shootings that we've seen over the last 20 years or so uh it was uh it, it happened it was a huge story we had to reorganize the newsroom into teams i supervised a team of reporters out in the field covering uh basically the sheriff's department uh because there was a lot of there was a lot of issues that rose out of this in terms of how the law enforcement responded to the event they basically weren't prepared they didn't have the equipment they needed and they kind of they stood outside for a while not really quite knowing what to do and it ultimately changed the way some of these mass shootings were handled by law enforcement. So we had people feeding in information to various editors. I was an editor at the time, an assistant city editor. And then we would feed it to basically rewrite people who would combine all this information coming in to write the stories. And there'd be, we would pretty much devoted the entire front section of the newspaper to this event. We'd have a main story and then lots of sidebars or, or, you know, uh, secondary stories covering everything from the families who these victims were, law enforcement, who the uh, the, the shooters, you know, they're, they're, that whole situation. How did, how, did they, how did these kids, these teenagers, 
fly under the radar for, I mean, they were basically uh, collecting weapons in their bedrooms. And that, so there were lots of pieces to the story that we had to report on. So it was a very, I had never been involved in a story that big. And it was, it was very interesting. Uh, it was, it was a, a, quite an experience. Well, given your work in journalism, as we've talked about, and, and um, uh, now you've written your novel, Summer Club, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? I would, aside from, from you know, obviously honing your writing skills, I would say, first of all, know your audience. Who are you writing this, this book for? And I know at the newspaper, we used to have daily budget meetings where we would uh, talk about all the stories that were coming in that day and often ask the question, what we called the so what question. Why, why are we doing this story? Who's going to read it? Why is this important for people to read? So I think you need, you need to know your audience. And I think you need to think about the reader. Oftentimes, I think writers get very immersed in subject matter that is very interesting to them, and which is fine, but they get way too much in the weeds or take the reader down a rabbit hole of too much information that becomes cumbersome for the reader. You have to balance wanting to enlighten the reader about something that you've the writer finds important with what do they need to know? Do they need to know everything? I mean, if you're writing a book in a, about World War, the World War II era, unless you're writing for war historians or military historians, you don't need to go into graphic detail about multiple battles. I mean, you need to find the story that's going to appeal to the most people. And yes, you need to provide the context, but you have to, it's a balancing act. And I think I've run into this a lot in my career and I've read books too, where there's just too much detail about a specific subject matter that is really interesting to the writer, but not necessarily to a broad base of readers. And I think that's something that writers need to keep in mind, which I think that's, that makes, that's why it's so important to have your book edited and everybody needs an editor, even an editor needs an editor and have beta readers because they beta readers who will tell you the truth and say, you know, this chapter really kind of left me in the dust. I, 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 you need to re rework this and, and, and then listen to that advice because they're the people who are telling you, here's how the, how the readers are going to receive your book. And I think that's, that's important. Um, so those are my two main pieces of advice for people wanting to write a book. Sure. Well, are there writers or specific novels that inspired you as you were working on Summer Club? Well, I have, in terms of fiction writing, there's a lot of different writers I, I do like. I, Leanne Moriarty, in particular, is someone whose writing style and stories, I think, resonated with me when it came to writing summer club she writes stories about books about and the one that comes to mind is um big little lies uh, of of um women I, I guess women's fiction appeals to me 
that you can recognize, I could recognize some of the characters in my own life. Because I think, I think one of the things a book needs to do is resonate with people where you can say, Oh, I know that character. I've been in that situation. And so I guess that's one writer that I did look to. Um, I, there's a more towels uh, who wrote a gentleman in Moscow. Obviously that's historical, but he is such a, gr- a fabulous writer. I mean, the writing in that book, it's one of the best books in terms of the actual writing I've ever read. Delia Owens, where the crawdads sing fabulous book. Um, I recently read, uh, American dirt by Janine Cummins, which I know has been somewhat controversial about uh, a, a woman and her son as refu- refugees coming to America as refugees through Mexico. And it was a gripping book. I mean, I, I could not put the book down. It was so good uh, in terms of the suspense and the drama and so on. So I look for books that, as they say, sort of a wide range of books, but those are the, some of the more recent ones I've read. I do like World War II era books, All the Light We Cannot See, and The Nightingale are two books that come to mind. Uh, Yag Yassi, who wrote a book called Homegoing, which basically parallels two girls from Africa. One ends up, you know, this starts in the 1600s, ends up being taken to America as a slave, and the other stays in Africa. And it talks about their two, how different their lives are, but how difficult. Uh, their lives. It was it was a very interesting book. So, I know. I guess my my taste, my favorite authors and books change as as more books get are written and more authors emerge. The books that I might have mentioned twenty years ago, I still like those books, but I'm obviously the the newer books are more come come to mind. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your debut novel, Summer Club? My website is www.katherindeanmazarov.com. So just my author name.com. And there you'll find uh, my bio and a little synopsis of Summer Club and my book club discussion questions, basically everything about the book. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Catherine Dean Mazarov, author of the debut novel, Summer Club. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Catherine, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Great. Now, stay tuned as Katie Mazarov reads from her novel, Summer Club. As the end of June approached, the rocky opening weekend was a distant memory. Yes, there were problems and complaints with members often bypassing the website's suggestion box and going straight to Lydia or Pete. No matter how smoothly things went, somebody was always unhappy about something, like the Murphy boys continuing to pee on the playground and throw rocks on the tennis courts. For the most part, though, things were going relatively well. Every day, the grounds were full of people playing tennis and enjoying the pool. Fred Lyons arrived promptly at noon to sunbathe and swim his laps. The ducks, with their growing ducklings in tow, appeared in the pool early every morning. And each day at eight, a perfectly coiffed Nancy Brown arrived to practice her ground strokes on the backboard. Pete was generally pleased, but he remained worried. He continued to see the blue sedan on his block and, more recently, near the club. The first time had been mid-June, directly across the street from the main entrance. 
Then he saw it again in front of the house next to Lydia's. The sedan sightings, along with the unresolved and strange trespassing incidents at the club early in the season, had convinced Pete that someone was targeting him. But who? Pete had racked his brain trying to figure out what he'd done or who he had been in contact with that might prompt someone to stake him out. He'd even set up a grid on an Excel program to chronicle his daily routine for the last year, along with special events and parties where he had interacted with people. He listed school meetings, parent conferences, parties, dinner engagements with friends, golf games, dealings with people at Meadow Glen, problem students, over-involved parents. He tried to recall phone conversations he'd had with old colleagues from Wall Street. Despite the thorough research, he'd come up with nothing that triggered anything obvious. Yet, he was convinced someone was watching him. Now, as he sat in bed with his laptop at 4 a.m. on the last Sunday of June, Pete made the decision to hire a private investigator, something he knew nothing about, and tell Shelley and the girls. Relieved he'd made a plan to confront the problem, Pete got up and took a shower. He made a pot of coffee and turned on the small TV in the kitchen. At five, he heard the newspaper hit the front porch. In what had become a morning ritual, Pete slowly opened the front door and peeked around the frame. He took a step onto the porch and glanced up and down the street. No cars. Thankful but tired, he went back to the kitchen and prepared himself an omelet, bacon, and toast. Then he was out the door, headed for Meadow Glen. Pete had taken the early shift as Sam had been on duty for steak night. He was confident the assistant manager had overseen the basic cleanup the night before, but there was always some trash left behind and no doubt the bathrooms would need a once-over. When he entered the grounds, Pete could smell the remnants of baked potatoes and grilled meat. The rented tables had been stacked against the patio wall alongside several boxes containing dirty table linens, plates, and silverware that would be picked up tomorrow. Pete decided to tackle the worst job first, the bathrooms. He scrubbed the toilets and sinks, then mopped the floors. Satisfied at the result, he grabbed a scraper and cleaned the residue of meat from the grills. Then he turned his attention to the service area, where three large trash bags were piled next to the dumpster. He would need to then spend the next hour or so attending to the pool, vacuuming it, cleaning popcorn kernels from the filter, checking the chemicals and replenishing the water that had leaked out since yesterday. As he tossed the last two bags, he noticed the dumpster was flush against the fence, which made it impossible to move. Pete had instructed Sam to keep the dumpster a good two feet from the fence so they could easily maneuver it out the gate on Thursday nights for Friday trash day, with the trash from the swim meet and steak night, plus the usual waste from what would be a busy Sunday night and week at the club. He needed to remedy this situation before the dumpster became too heavy to maneuver at all. Pete tried to pull and push, but the large metal container wouldn't budge. Something was catching on the bottom of the bin. He grabbed a flashlight and looked underneath and saw an object wedged under one of the wheels. Damn it, Sam. Probably wasn't paying attention when he rolled the dumpster bag in Friday morning, Pete thought. He retrieved a long pole and tried to push the obstacle out. No luck. But he could tell that whatever it was, it was soft. He pushed his back against the dumpster and, after several good pushes, was able to rock it back and forth. A few more tries and the dumpster finally rolled off whatever it was that had been caught. By now he was sweating, his shirt was filthy, 
and his knuckles were scraped and bleeding. What the hell? How in God's name did this thing get so catawampus? Pete stepped back and looked at the dumpster. Whatever had been lodged under the wheel was no longer in the way, but the bin was still awkwardly positioned up against the fence. He would have to try to pull it out a few inches at a time, alternating sides. With each pull, the dumpster moved an inch or less. Finally, Pete managed to pull the dumpster out about six inches from the fence. Now he could easily roll the container out another foot. Exhausted and sore from the laborious ordeal, and disgusted that Sam had left the dumpster in such an unmovable position, Pete went to the men's bathroom to clean his face and wash his hands. He needed a clean shirt. Shelley or one of the girls could bring one up later. Then he remembered the object that had been lodged under the dumpster. He went to the back again and found it in the space he created between the bin and the fence. It was a black satchel of some kind, size of a backpack or duffel bag. Pete picked up the object, fully expecting to toss it into the bin, but hesitated when he felt something inside. He opened it. After seeing what the bag contained, he dropped it to the ground. His hand shaking, he reached for his phone and called Lydia. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.